0: From howstuffworks.com.
2: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And all of you, there you this Stuff you should know.
1: Man, that coffee smells good. You want some? Have a sip. No, I'm fine, but it just, I, I just love that smell. It's so nice. Even though I don't drink much coffee.
2: Oh yeah, I'm with you.
1: You know, it's just a delicious smell.
2: Sometimes I'll go to a department store and just walk through the um, fragrance aisle uh-huh. and just smell the coffee samples they have there.
1: Well, I thought you were going to say you go through the lingerie and just brush up against things <laughs> <laughs> after the coffee. Oh, okay.
2: after the coffee sniffing's done and I can't smell anything anymore.
1: Right. Uh, how are for, you?
2: Thanks for outing me. <laughs>
1: It's creepy. Yeah. I'm sure
2: there's weirdos out there who do that, too.
1: Are you kidding me? There's probably websites dedicated to it. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I'm fine. Good. Good. Do you like wine? I love wine. How do you know, Chuck, that the wine you're drinking is actually (laughs) the wine you think it is?
1: (laughs) Because nobody bothers to fraudulently rip off a $15 bottle of wine. Not true. Yeah? Yeah.
2: There's a... Famous ish in the world of wine fraud watch people. Okay. Um, from Tesco, which is, I think it, it's just a straight up like supermarket in Britain.
1: I saw that actually.
2: Yeah, you're right. And there was a Louis Jadot, which normally goes for about 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. It was selling on sale for five pounds. That's a good deal. Uh, but one of the guys who purchased it contacted some people who are into wine and said, I think this is phony because the label looks like it's a photocopy. So somebody was doing wow. knockoff Louis Jadot, which normally goes for not that much and sold it to Tesco, who was in turn selling it. And this is a huge thing. Man, there's a big, big debate even still on just how widespread wine fraud is. And yeah. it's really difficult to get to the bottom of because there's so many people who have their fingers in this fraudulent pot, whether wittingly or unwittingly. Yeah. And either way are unwilling to admit. That it's as extensive as it is or the people who are burned are making a bigger deal out of it than they are – than it really is because they have the money right. and the context to get CBS to do a story on how they got burned by buying some fake wine. Yeah. So it's not entirely clear how widespread it is, but there have been some really great, um, very famous, but almost proven stories yeah. of outright wine fraud. But it's a pretty new phenomenon.
1: Uh, Well, if you think ancient Rome is pretty new.
2: <laughs> Let's hear it, man.
1: <laughs> well, that's – I mean, there ever since there was wine, people were making fake wine or or trumping it up as something other than it was. Uh-huh. So the, the newer practice – like you can divide it into two things. There was – in ancient Rome, they were doing stuff like this and adding like lead to wine to sweeten it while they were killing people. Uh, but then there's the new practice of like, hey – This is a Thomas Jefferson Uh bottle of wine, right? and you can buy it at a Christie's auction for $100,000, and it's really not that at all.
2: Do you remember back in the 80s, um, I think Rio Nitti was adding, like, windshield wiper fluid or something? Yeah. It was at the very least an urban legend.
1: More recently, there was something added to wine to make it sweeter Mm -hmm. that was – really bad for you, yeah. but I don't know. I can't confirm if it was that case or not. This
2: was specifically Reunita in the 80s, and it, it again, it could have just been an urban legend because this right. is the same time that there were spiders, eggs, and bubble yum.
1: Oh, uh, sure. You know? Yeah, there was a lot of like uh, consumer uh, uh, panic, I think. Yeah, it was a golden age for urban legends. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and you know what? We need to do one-on-one, on period. Yes,
2: this is so us. Yeah. We'll do episodes on everything but the actual thing, and then we'll uh-huh. finally get to the thing.
1: Uh, and we could also probably do a completely separate podcast on wine tasting because, man, that's a really bitter pill. Because uh there are some people who say there really is no difference in mm-hmm. these wines. Yeah. And there have been numerous occasions over the years where jerks have set up wine tasters to fail yeah. by just switching out wines and saying, this is a really nice bottle or what's really crappy. Right. And they say, whoa, this is lovely. The tannins are really coming in. It's jammy and full. And they're like, you're drinking two buck chuck. Um, people love that stuff. That It's a big bone of contention with wine drinkers and also people who like to poo-poo that. Right. Uh, and say it's all subjective and you're all just snooty and there really is no difference. But there really is a difference.
2: Well, okay, so there is a like you say there's there's a big debate over that right yeah um but if you if you dive into the world of high end vintage wine collecting yes it is very um it's like an ouroboros right that snake that eats its own tail right in that the people who are in charge of judging whether something's real or not are basing that on their previous experiences which may or may not have been an experience with a fraudulent wine. So even if you can tell the difference, if you've only been exposed to, say, fraudulent 18th century wine, then when you are asked to judge a bottle of like 18th century wine, you're going to compare it to that. And if it's ultimately coming from the same counterfeiter, you will be like, yes, this is the real thing, because I've had that before, and it tastes like that.
1: Well, yeah, and here's the other thing. Is there, there is vintage, uh, appropriately aged wine that is tastes great, uh, because it has aged in such a way. And okay. then there are these super old bottles that apparently taste like canned asparagus. Mm. Uh, is the the note that it brings out, and these don't even taste that good. Right. It's just the fact that you can own it and show people. Right. You don't even drink it in most cases. Yes. Like you don't drink a Jefferson wine. No. You have it in your collection. So some people say, ooh, look at my collection.
2: Exactly. That's the whole point. A lot of people, for a lot of people, that's the whole point. It's just own this bottle. It's like owning a piece of Thomas Jefferson. You get to show off and, and tell people how great you are, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, That's how a lot of wine counterfeiting has gotten away with because the people are never going to open the wine. Exactly. So whatever tampering you did with the, the, the seal is never going to be discovered. Mm -hmm. Um, they're never going to taste the wine inside. So it could be two buck chuck or whatever.
1: Won't see the cork.
2: Yeah. Um, and they're just, they're just happy to have this thing and their status to be elevated. It's to the point where they don't really want to know if it's a counterfeit. So long as they can walk around and tell people, right. this is Thomas Jefferson.
1: Right. Well, we we should go ahead and start talking about Bill Koch. He is uh, one of the other brothers. Uh, he is not Charles or David Koch of the famous uh, Republican uh, Koch brother fame. Yeah. Billionaire uh, supporters of the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah? Sure. <laughs> Are you saying that's like the nicest way to yeah. describe them? it really is. Yeah, it is. Uh, he is the brother, one of the brothers who got out along with another brother, um, but of, not another brother from another mother. No, they all have the same mother, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he got out of the family business and said, "You know what? I'm a billionaire. I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start collecting really rare and expensive things." Mm-hmm. Um, one thing he has is a gun collection. He owns Custer's rifle. Billy
2: the Kid's pistol.
1: Does he? Yeah. He yeah. owns the gun that killed Jesse James.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. He has Je- Jesse James' pistol and that gun. And that gun. Ro- what was his name? Robert Ford?
1: Uh, Yeah. And Man, that was uh, a good movie. Oh, boy, was it. Really <laughs> good. Beautifully shot as well. Yeah. Uh, Wyatt Earp's rifle, Doc Holliday's rifle. He owns a lot of vintage guns. He owns a lot of very famous works of art, like original Picassos and Monets. Right. As uh, far as he knows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he sounds like a big sucker to me. Yeah. Uh, and he also owns... Uh, as this article says, several hundred bottles of what he calls "moose piss." Yeah, that's
2: what he calls it. He's he well, he's saying that for all he knows, that's what's inside.
1: He got duped very famously, many
2: many times.
1: Yeah, and he has had many many lawsuits over the years that have come out. This because guy of
2: this. loves suing people. Oh, sure. He does what he calls dropping subpoenas on people. Oh yeah. Yeah, he he sues people almost recreationally.
1: He, he drops a subpoena on their head. Yeah.
2: What a guy. So he, um, he, Bill Koch, again, very famously, he's probably the most famous victim of wine fraud um, because he sues everybody he possibly can who may or may not have sold him a fake. Sure. He really takes it personally, and he really goes after people. Um, and he did a lot of media about this, too. So he's very famous for this, um, and he brought in some wine experts and said, here are 30,000 40,000 bottles of wine that I have in my cellars. Wow. How many are fake? And they just took a random sample of 3,000 bottles.
1: Oh, he kidding me?
2: No, they said <laughs> What are uh, you paying me again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, "We'll bill you for this." Yeah. Um they they took a random sample of 3,000 bottles and it yielded 130 fakes. So, I mean, he has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds by by extension of fake bottles of wine in a cellar. And that was actually, that's about on par with what the average, not necessarily uninitiated or uneducated wine buyer, but fervent vintage wine buyer would have. Right. That about $4 million seller, about a million of it will be on fakes.
1: Yeah. And he supposedly spent close to $5 million on fake wine over the past uh, quarter century. Um, including some of those Jeffersons that we'll talk about. Uh, and a lot of this wine came from, uh, a man named Rudy, uh, Kerniawan.
2: Ooh, that's good stuff.
1: Yeah? It's even better than I had in my head. What'd you have?
2: Kerniawan.
1: Kerniawan? (laughs) I like that. I think
2: Kerniawan is good.
1: Uh, and this guy was one of the most famous, um, really alongside another guy that we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. one of the most famous wine fraudists. Fraudsters? Fraudster. Counterfeiters? Counterfeiters of all time. Um, And he was sentenced to 10 years in prison and supposedly was to pay close to $50 million in damages.
2: Which is easily what he made by selling fake wine. Sure. In in two sales in 2006, he made $36 million selling fake wine.
1: What a jerk. And it's easy to sit back and the defense team even used this in court to say, ah, these are rich guys, like no harm, no foul. Who cares very easy if you're ripping that. off the rich? Yes, very easy. And I even yeah. found myself kind of thinking that. But at the end of the day, who you, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong.
2: Sure. I mean, like I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't sell a counterfeit bottle of wine.
1: Yeah, it's wrong. It's yeah. illegal and it's it's gross. And just because you're ripping off the rich, it's not like he's Robin hood and giving that then to the poor. <laughs> you know, no, he was yeah, becoming rich himself.
2: I, I didn't have the idea that he was doing that. No. Plus, um, Dave Ruse who wrote this, made this point, but I, uh, I take issue with it. That ultimately, vintage counterfeit wine fraud affects all wine drinkers because that stuff trickles down. I don't think that's true because from reading this, um, there were two really great long form articles that this article was partially based on. One was in the the New Yorker. And one was on Vanity Fair and both of them were totally worth reading. Yeah, agreed. Um, but just from reading those, you get the impression that those are two very different worlds that the world of like just regular wine appreciation and vintage wine collection. Yeah. Form a Venn diagram that just barely overlaps and that one really does not affect the econ- the economics of the other. So if there's a, f- a bunch of counterfeit stuff going on in the vintage wine world, it probably wouldn't drive up prices for the wine that you're buying that's, you know, 10 years old tops. Yeah. So I don't think that that's necessarily true, his point that we all shoulder the burden that counterfeiters do because these two worlds are so divorced. But even still, like if you were a um, – But people are losing money and reputations are being built up and lost. Yeah. You know?
1: I get that. All right. Well, let's take a little break and we'll come back and uh, we'll talk about the two ways that you can generally go about trying to fake a wine.
2: All right. Game off.
1: All right, we're back. We're drunk on wine. So drunk. I wish.
2: What's your favorite wine?
1: Uh, my favorite wines are big-bodied California Cabernets, generally. <laughs> like, not a specific, like, winemaker, if that's what you are asking. I'm not going to like...
2: Yeah, there's no wrong answer. Yeah.
1: No. Well, I was that funny?
2: <laughs> because it made me think of Fat Bottom Girls, that Queen
1: song. <laughs> Big bodied California <laughs> Cabernets.
2: Yeah, it just popped in my head and I laughed like a goon.
1: Yeah, I'm a, i am I like really full bodied, uh, wines, Zinfandels and Cabernets. Yeah. I, I think California is just, they're, they're doing it right.
2: You know, they say Petit Syrah is the Rodney Dangerfield of the <laughs> wine world. <laughs> I've heard that.
1: Yeah. So if you're going to go about faking a wine, um, you, uh, there are two things you can do. You can either fake the wine inside a real bottle. Right. Or you can fake the bottle with, Real wine, real yeah, and it's all real wine, you know. But it's what I'm just different vintage, maybe. Yeah, but like it could be like a really nice 1947 wine, right? That you say oh, it's actually from 1914, or even
2: 1941. I mean, like it, it, it could be within a couple of years. Well, yeah, it just that's depends true. Depends on on whether it was a good year. Yeah, good point. Uh, or if the if there's a scarcity of it, that kind of stuff. And actually, Bill Koch makes a pretty good point. His whole thing is he wants to have. I think 150 years of Lafitte or some some house, like every single vintage that they released of every single varietal yeah. over the course of 150 years, which is extremely ambitious. Sure. And he said it's easy to get the, the really prized ones because those are the ones that like people saved and all that stuff. Right, right. He said it's the mediocre years that oh, are old. That nobody bothered to say they just drank and threw away the bottle or or just didn't keep it. Right. Those are the ones that he has the most trouble
1: finding. Or they did the skeet shooting. They just had the servants throw it up in the air and they shot them with shotguns.
2: Yeah. That's what they do. (laughs) Richie Riches.
1: Uh, Well, you make a good point, too, because Kearney Allen, although he dealt in the super high echelon, he would also take a 200 bottle of wine and fake it to be like a $1,000 bottle of wine. Yeah, he
2: did it both ways. Yeah. He would would take out – he would take an old bottle, a legitimate real bottle, put in his own mix of wine and cork it again and and make it look like it had never been opened. Yeah. Or, like you said, he would take – just say – a 47 Lafitte and mess with the label to make it look like a 41 Lafitte, which would be worth 10 times the, what the 47 Lafitte would be worth, right? And that's clearly, right. I also want to point out, Lafitte is obviously the only f- f- fancy wine that I'm familiar <laughs> with because that, that's my go-to. So if you guys are out there and you're getting the impression that I know what I'm talking about as far as wine goes, you have been duped. Well, you're not a big wine guy. No, oh. You're on record as such. I like wine. I'm I'm definitely not a wine guy. Yeah,
1: exactly. Just, yeah, uh, and I'm not wine guy either. I'm I'm at the the very, I'm wine guy in the barest sense of the word. I like really good wines. I like going to wineries, but I'm certainly no like. I'm not saying I have some amazing palate. I can't pick out vanilla notes and things like that. I'm just like, man, this tastes really good. Well, going okay. to pour up a bottle of it.
2: And I tend to fall into that camp where I'm certain that there are people out there, literal tastemakers who can tell the difference between wine. Sure. And I've had wine that I didn't like before. I've had wine that I do like. Um, but I, th- I fall into the camp where I'm ultimately like, it's, it's whatever you appreciate. There's yeah. no hierarchy. There doesn't need to be, um, You know, a $2,000 bottle is not necessarily going to taste as good as a $20 bottle. Right. The whole thing is just about individual enjoyment. And any kind of snobbery associated with it, to me, just misses the point.
1: Yeah. Here's my deal is I can really tell the difference between what I would consider cheap wine and, like, a decent bottle or a good bottle. But that's where my taste level maxes out. I can't tell the difference between... A two hundred dollar bottle and a and a forty dollar bottle. Okay. But if you gave me like a, a six dollar bottle, right. yeah, you you can taste the difference. It's between clear. that
2: and like a twenty dollar bottle?
1: Yeah, but even then if that's what you like, that's what you like. I'm not sure, gonna like yeah. poo poo, it's just not what I want. Right. You know? Oh man. A lot of caveats there.
2: So um we were talking about Rudy Kay.
1: Yeah, and how to how he faked wines. And he, Which was he got real bottles, correct, in general, yeah, and made his own wine concoctions.
2: Here's what this dude did, right? To get to the point where he could even counterfeit, yes, he got his hands on real stuff. And he ran up some serious, serious bar tabs while he was doing it. Oh, yeah. There's a very um, legendary story of him hooking up with this guy who was the head of wine sales at a um, – a, uh, uh, an auction house called uh, Acker Merrill, they factor in big time into this guy's ascent yeah. Rudy Kay's counterfeit ascent. Not wittingly necessarily, but they they let him use their reputation to build his own. But he did it by duping them, mm-hmm. by throwing, like, these crazy parties at, like, uh, um, at um, restaurants and having, like, $250,000 tabs. Yeah. Picking up the tab himself, but then after everybody left, going to the staff at the restaurant being like, mail me every single one of those bottles. Right. And they go, okay, it's your wine, but yeah. that's weird. Not enough to make mention of it, but it was odd to them. His big thing was that he did it at the same place over and over again. Yeah. So they did start to notice. But while he was doing this, he was also collecting wine, too, really expensive vintage wine. And there was already a market for it, but it didn't look anything like the market that he built almost himself. He drove the value of vintage wine up almost single-handedly by buying up as many bottles of old stuff as he could. Yeah. Um, And while he was doing that, he was building his reputation, he was making connections, and he was getting his hands on legitimate wine that he could use to resell now that the market was up at a a higher price after he would already consumed it at, say, like a party.
1: Yeah, and one thing he was doing that uh, tipped off some people early on was, um, like you were saying, he was buying off years of good vintages, great vintages. Yeah. To where there was one guy, I think it was Jeffrey Troy was his name. He was a wine merchant. And he said he was buying these good bottles of French Burgundy, but they weren't great. They were off years. Right. And it was just, if he was a collector, it was just weird right. to buy these uh, and to be adamant about buying these. Right. Because he could get them for cheaper and fake them easier.
2: Exactly. Like he could just kind of smudge the, the year and all of a sudden it's a much more expensive vintage. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's driving the market up. He's buying legitimate wine. Apparently he's taking out loans that he defaulted on to, to build this reputation yeah. of his. Um, and so when the market hits, he starts counterfeiting. And there was one story that actually, uh, was pretty prominent in the Vanity Fair article where he was apparently confused. He thought, and there's no way that any of us would have ever thought this, but he thought that a Ponceau Clos Saint Denis was the same thing as the Christine Ponceau Clos Saint-Denis. <laughs> right. He was way <laughs> off. So it turns out that um, he figured that Ponceau uh, made this wine in Burgundy in the 40s because Christine Ponceau Clos Saint-Denis made this wine in the 40s. turns out right. that the regular Ponceau, the very um, famous Ponceau family, made their Clos Saint-Denis starting in the 80s. So he actually got found out because of this one mistake. This led to his unraveling. Yeah. And he was going to auction or sell about like 95 bottles of this stuff that was overtly counterfeit. It had never existed. Yeah. Which also said a lot about the collectors at the time, too. Because sure. they were coveting and paying for wine that they'd never even heard of. Yeah, it didn't exist. Strictly because these these people were
1: attached to it. Yeah. It's pretty amazing.
2: It really is. And that's how he was able to get away with it for so long because that dinner, the guy, Ponceau himself, um, the guy who was the proprietor of the vineyard, showed up at that dinner, flew from Paris to, uh, I think, New York. Yeah. To be at the dinner to make sure that they didn't auction off those things because he knew they were counterfeit. And uh, uh, Rudy Kay still was left to just keep going for years after that. Yeah. Because, uh, because of reputations.
1: Well, and like you said, he had built up this reputation, which is a big part of it. Um, you have to be a true con artist. You can't just go in there right. uh, and say, "Hey, I've got all these Jefferson wines." I'm, uh, I'm Chuck. Right. You know, you have to be known in the community, and it takes a long time. And they have to, to think build you, that rep,
2: right? Yeah, they have to think you have money, real money, which he did. No, he borrowed it all.
1: Well, I thought he came from money. No, that was, was that backstory. all a ruse. Yep. Well, he had money at one point. He borrowed it. Oh, I know. But then he made a lot. Right.
2: So think about this. I think he defaulted on a three or four million dollar loan and then another one or two million dollar loan. And then he also borrowed privately from other like wine collectors that he knew. Yeah. But even still, let's say he borrowed ten million dollars that he defaulted. He made tens and tens and tens more millions. Thirty four million dollars in one year just from two sales.
1: Yeah. And he currently is appealing his conviction. Um on the grounds that uh that when when he was arrested, he was arrested on his front porch, then they searched his house. Yeah. And they said, You can't do that. Th- they got the, the uh search warrant afterward and he said, Well you can't do that. There should I should have never been searched. Yeah really and it's looking like they're saying, No, you know what, they had reasonable uh doubt uh to Phil search Coke your said. home. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think that appeal is gonna go anywhere. But this is as recently as like this year I think he's still appealing.
2: Huh. Yeah but he got 10 years right yeah 10 years man um so he got caught and he got caught red hand red-handed it sounds like um, and the people who were attached to him that helped build up this market definitely suffered a, a some dings to their reputation oh yeah but are saying like we had no idea we trusted this guy we were duped too and um to their to their merit Acker Merrill um, offered like uh, money back guarantees on anything that was considered or found well, to be good. fake, and and paid up on it after one auction.
1: Well, one of the guys Coke is suing is I uh, can't remember his name, but he suppo- supposedly is like I didn't know I was selling you fake wine. Like I got duped, right? And he's saying no, you knew. So they're trying to prove right. uh, whether or not this guy actually knew.
2: And so that's that's another part of that debate where how widespread is this? Who knows what?
1: Yeah. Um, And who's like, how far do you go back before you find the person who did it?
2: Right. So we'll talk about one other person who allegedly did it right after this break. All right. Game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. So, Chuck, there's another man, very famous man in the wine world. His name is Hardy, Hardy Rodenstock. But I don't believe that's his real name. His real name is what? Meinhard Gurke. That's right. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> that's his uh, given name. But he goes by Hardy Rodenstock and has since the 70s. And he, uh, to be a truly great uh, wine counterfeiter, not only do you have to build up a reputation as rich and um, willing to crack bottles of ridiculously expensive, um, historically valuable wine at parties where there's wine critics and auctioneers and wine experts. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also have to have a certain love for wine. I think Rudy Kay definitely loved wine.
1: Yes, but they all have
2: but yeah, and Hardy Rodenbach definitely does too. And apparently, there's there's a big question about whether he is one of the better wine mixers on the planet.
1: Who Rodenstock? Yeah, yeah.
2: Because that that's a real job where like like uh, someone will work at a winery and they'll take a little bit of this and a little yeah. bit of that, and then all of a sudden you've got their a blend. Uh, yeah, their 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 blend. Some blends are better than others. Apparently, Rodenstock is a master blender if he is, in fact, a counterfeiter. This article on How Stuff Works make it, makes it sound like Bill Koch's hired FBI gun closed the book and, like, it's done. But it's never been proven in a court of law that Rodenstock actually um, was this counterfeiter, and he's, he still denies the allegations. Oh, well, the, the circumstantial evidence is pretty – Pretty substantial.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the only reason is because he refuses to come to America to go to court. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. He's like there's I'm German.
2: But there's no criminal prosecution. It's all civil as far as I understand.
1: Yeah, I think that's the case. So he was uh, a former music manager and um, he, I think they're making a, there's a book called The Billionaire's Vinegar about this, about the Jefferson wines. It's
2: so interesting.
1: That uh, they're making into a movie with McConaughey of course. Oh, yeah? Does (laughs) he
2: play Bill Koch or Hardy Rodenstock? I don't know who he's
1: playing. Or does he just kind of like wander around dazed (laughs) in the background? He's the winemaker, man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure who he's playing, actually. But uh, it was a big book, and it was about the famous uh, Jefferson wines. And basically the deal is, Thomas Jefferson, as we all know, was uh, way into wine, way Mm. into France, um, a big Francophile, and he had either bottles in his collection or he had his own vintage as well, mm-hmm. um, Thomas Jefferson Wines. And uh, very famously, uh, Hardenstock was rooted out, allegedly, I guess, do we have to say that, as faking these Jefferson bottles. Yeah. Um He would force, you know, you're supposed to spit out when you're drinking wine, <laughs> <and> tasting. <laughs> yeah. he, would, he would, I don't know about force, but highly encourage his guests to swallow right. so they would be drunker. Uh, by the time they got to the real good stuff at the end.
2: Which is, uh, and again, so it's unusual to force your guests to drink rather than spit out the wine at a tasting party. Yeah. And then it's also unusual to bring out your best stuff at the end because everybody knows your palate is saturated and you can't really tell the difference anyway.
1: Well, if you've ever been on a wine tour and go to, like, several wineries... You you definitely, at the last winery, you're like, give me a case. Right. (laughs) This is great.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So when he's throwing these parties and these tastings, again, he's invited and very smart to invite wine experts, wine critics, wine journalists. It's an event. It is an event. And again, all these people think that this dude is just this eccentric, extraordinarily rich dude who is literally opening to drink and share with them these wonderful the, these these people who are peons compared to this man, he's such a great man because he's opened a 1787 bottle of Thomas Jefferson's wine and yeah. he's given me a glass. <laughs> I've got to go write about it. i got to talk about how great yeah. Hardy Rodenstock is. So he's very smart to have surrounded himself with the people he did.
1: Yeah, so his story was that he said um, he claimed that he found a, a batch of Jefferson bottles uh, behind a brick wall in a Paris, uh, Parisian basement. That he still hasn't revealed where this is. Right, a little suspicious. A little, uh, and especially then,
2: if he already got all the wine out of there. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, and then he and uh, he went and sold a lot of these to people like Coke and uh, Christopher Forbes and other billionaires for um, hundreds of thousands of dollars per bottle.
2: And I think they were like about one hundred and twenty a bottle.
1: Yeah, it's a ton of money. Sure. And um, they were fakes and. It, it was all. It all came down to a little matter of punctuation, which is hysterical to me. Yeah. Uh, the Thomas Jefferson bottles. Um, well, first of all, he kept really meticulous records because he was so into wine. Jefferson did. TJ did. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So uh, on the bottles, Chuck, it said, ing- "It was engraved T H period capital J period." Right. Supposedly, Jefferson, when he wrote his initials, it would be T H colon capital J, period.
1: So that fatal flaw of the matter of punctuation is what gave him away, basically. Yeah. Period and not a colon.
2: There's a larger question, too. So the idea that Thomas Jefferson would have his bottles engraved was based on a letter, a verified letter. Um, It was an order that Jefferson placed for French wine on behalf of himself and George Washington, which makes these bottles even more amazingly awesome because they think, well... These came from a, an order that Jefferson placed that were also in George Washington's shipment as well, and that they, the, they needed to be separated out by initials. But if you step back and you think, they wouldn't go in and engrave all the bottles. They'd just no. mark the crates that the bottles came in. This crate goes to George. This crate goes to Jefferson because he was ordering it by the case, not by the bottle. So the idea that the bottles would be engraved is also dubious in and of itself. Sure. But Monticello historians are like, number one, he this is wrong the way that this is engraved. That's not how he would have done it. And secondly, there's no records in all of – we have the records for this era, and there's nothing in there about these vintages being in Monticello yeah. or being ordered by Jefferson. And then also, um, once Bill Koch put his FBI dude on the on the case, it turns out that it's likely that this, this engraving was done by modern instruments.
1: Yeah, he hired a guy named, uh, an ex-fed uh, named Jim McElroy, or I'm sorry, Jim Elroy. And he... I know, I kept wanting to say
2: McElroy too. Uh, really? I guess because of the McElroy brothers.
1: So uh, he hired this guy, paid him a lot of money, I imagine, to try and do some digging on this. And one of their first lines of defense was... Uh, there's something called uh, cesium one hundred and thirty-seven, and that is uh, a radioactive isotope that exists because it's a product of nuclear fission of uranium. So it didn't exist until we started doing that
2: before we started launching nuclear bomb explosion tests.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, now it, it exists, and you can actually test for this stuff. So if you find, uh, you know, it basically can date something back to nineteen forty-five. Right. However, uh, in the case of Hardenstock, he was smart enough at least to use wine older than 1945, so that didn't really help him much.
2: Yeah, and I wonder if he just, surely he just lucked out. I don't know. Because I wonder if that cesium test was around when he did this, because this he supposedly found him in 85 and started selling them immediately.
1: Yeah, who knows? Maybe he got lucky. Or maybe he just was like, I need to use some really old, nice wine yeah. to at least try and get away with it.
2: So again, there's like... And then the one other part of the um, the case against him was that he had a tenant once at his family's house who had an apartment near his in the house, and in the basement, the tenant said that he saw like basically tons of empty bottles and um, l- stacks of labels and all this stuff, which to the tenant meant well, this guy's forging wine. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's a little more. That's probably what I would think. Hope he doesn't go
1: by my recycling. Every Wednesday,
2: <laughs> you're a wine counterfeiter. <laughs> it could
1: be. Uh, so there are a lot of. Uh, uh, there's nothing you can do about these these old. Um, I mean, you can have people inspect them and try and verify them, but there's really nothing you can do as a like a foolproof method. Uh, but really nice wineries now are doing, there are a lot of methods you can do now for future generations of right. wine fraud.
2: Yeah. For the vintage stuff, you're SOL, basically. Yes. You just have to really trust where it's coming from. Probably hire an expert and, um, maybe stay away from rodent stock if you're Bill Coke, right? That's right. But they're, yeah, like you said, the, the modern guys are using things like, um, RFID tags, um, QR codes that you scan, and it takes you to a website or something. Yeah,
1: microchips Uh, like you have in your dog.
2: Yeah, so you can track the actual bottle. There's also, like, tamper-proof capsules that the wine is encased in, the, the bottle's neck, that when that's opened, it changes color if it's ever been opened. And some actually alert the Internet or... I guess back home at headquarters. Yeah, they alert the internet. Once it's been <laughs> open, uh huh. And there's another one that's pretty cool. There's this company that inserts a a uh, specific DNA marker into like the ink on the label that can't be counterfeited, yeah. and that they can go back and later and be like, no, this is real. At the very least, we know the label's real.
1: Yeah, in Rudy Case's case, he had a bunch of credit card charges for glue and labels and. And he, I mean, he had a, a pretty nice trail of evidence behind him. Yeah, I'm he sure he was not very smart with it.
2: Well, I mean, if his apartment was just a counterfeiting factor. yeah. And then, lastly, check the one of the, the pieces of evidence that a lot of people point to when they say that um, wine fraud is a big deal um, is eBay. Yeah, like bottles. Yeah, you can go on eBay and spend a hundred bucks on a empty bottle that if. It weren't empty, would go for a thousand or ten thousand or whatever. And the idea behind it, of course, is that somebody's filling it up and putting it back on the market as a counterfeit.
1: Why would someone sell that? That reason to make a hundred bucks on a ten thousand dollar bottle of wine. Sure, some people love money. (laughs) I know it just seems like a lot. I, I, I just people who buy that kind of wine, I don't picture them. Going on eBay and running auctions over empty bottles. It
2: makes you wonder also if like those are people who, like they're just working at a restaurant. Well, that's what it sounds like to me. I can take that home and put it on eBay.
1: The servant throws the, uh, you know, cleans up after the dinner party. Yeah. That's what I figure is going on.
2: And apparently a lot of restaurants now, because of guys like Rudy Kay and, uh, Hardy Rhodes, Rodenstock now, um, smash vintage bottles once the wine's been ordered and drunk.
1: With well with the shotgun and the uh, <laughs> right. skeet shooting.
2: I got one last thing. supposedly there were only five magnums of 1947 Lefleur produced. okay uh, between 2005 and 2007, 18 magnums <laughs> of 1947 Lefleur were sold at auction.
1: Wow. that's so easy to like how can that happen? That's so easy to check when there's only five of something.
2: The argument is that either the guy who works at Le Fleur and did in 1947 and says, no, there was only five Magnums, doesn't remember. Right. Because the record keeping in like Burgundy is terrible back in the day. Sure. Um, or that the there's just no will. There's so much of a market for counterfeit wine and there's not enough pressure being put on right. the people who are actually selling it or allowing it to happen that it's just – Whatever. <laughs> and supposedly now that America's gotten more and more savvy, this counterfeit market is moving over to China. To oh where yeah. there's like a lot of wealth coming up and not a lot of wine education and people are just getting taken for rides.
1: Man. Good I, stuff.
2: Yeah, this was a good one, man. Good pick. If you want to know more about wine fraud, you can type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And I said search bar. So Chuck, what is the time for?
1: Facebook questions. All right. Sometimes we pull questions from Facebook to answer them. That's what we're doing now. (laughs) This is from Diane Martin. Diane F. Martin. Uh, Since your podcasts are essentially what would be called literature reviews and research lingo, how do you decide which references to include and exclude? Do you use any kind of quality indicators to decide what you will and won't include? Uh, especially when they're deeply debated, is a good question. Um, We've talked about our research process. I think we try to use peer-reviewed journals. And, I mean, if we find something uh, on the Internet, we try and double and triple check that information. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know a big giveaway you always talk about is if it's the same exact thing printed a bunch, that's usually a sign that it could be bogus.
2: Like Rodney Dangerfield being in The Scout?
1: Yeah, in the movie The Scout. Uh, but it still bears mentioning. Sure, you just have
2: to mention it with the caveat. Yeah, we don't find it credible, but it's out there because it doesn't. Yeah. it exists in some form or fashion. Uh, scientific journals. Yeah, medical journals. Sure. Uh, I mean, well, peer-reviewed is just a great way to go if you can get your hands on it. Like, yeah, I remember this great article called "Like Why Is Science Behind a Paywall?" About the basically the cart, the science publishing cartel. Mm-hmm. But if you can get your hands on Peer reviewed stuff that's the best stuff to work with.
1: Agreed. Uh, go ahead.
2: Another question, yeah, Chuck. For me, this is from Shane Elliott. I knew, I think you meant no. This question will find a special place in Chuck's heart. What are your favorite types and kinds of beers and why? Do you grow your own beer? And somebody else said recently on Twitter that you said in the beer episode that you were going to get into homebrewing. Did you ever? So that's no. a two-part question for you, Chuck, <laughs> from Twitter and Facebook.
1: Well, you're a beer guy too. Sure, uh, I, I like beer. I uh, do not brew my beer, uh, but I'm on the record is really liking IPAs. I know there's a backlash going on now. Why? Because there's so many of them, and people are like, "There's other kinds of beers in the world. IPAs taste like soap." I love IP. I love anything that's super hoppy. Yeah, I do. I just that's what I like.
2: Our friend uh, Dave dropped by. Yeah, from, from Sweetwater. From Sweetwater and brought us some hop hash.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I haven't tried it yet. Have you?
1: No, but his all that stuff is good. Yeah, Sweetwater does a great job. Yeah, and we've always both kind of agreed that uh, uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is one of the great all-time. It pale is ales. great for sure. But there's oh. so many great ones. Bell's Two-Hearted, I love. Oh and, man.
2: Uh, that might be the best ever.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that Pliny the Elder, we got sent some of that. That, that was, was delicious. Um, oh, here in Athens, Georgia, Creature Comforts Tropicalia.
2: I've not had that one. Delicious. Um, Orpheus Brewing is here in Atlanta. Yeah. And they make a sour that I tried that was really, really good.
1: I'm not into the sours. Have you tried it? Sours? Yeah. Yeah. You I don't just like. didn't like it.
2: I loved it. I don't get it either. It was so weird that I was like, this is kind of good. Yeah. It was weird in a good way because sometimes weird can just be novel and you're like, okay, I tried that. It's done. This is, I mean, I like it.
1: Yeah. I don't like wheat beers. I don't either. Um, Belgian whites. No, not a fan.
2: Mm -mm. All right. There's your answer, Fishbowl. No, I'm
1: thirsty. Jackson Bly, other than Atlanta, what are your top five favorite cities each? Jeez, uh, New York, San Francisco, Seattle. Do they
2: have to be American cities? No, just cities.
1: Okay. Uh, well, in that case, then I'll throw in uh, Paris and uh, London. Look at me, well, fancy fancy. I know, I know. <laughs>
2: uh, let's see. I love uh, Hiroshima, Japan. Is a really neat city. So is Kyoto. I'm gonna make those tied for one though. Of course, New York. Sure. Um, Let's see. Where else?
1: I like D.C. a lot, too.
2: Yeah. It's a great town. Um, Rome, Italy is surprisingly neat.
1: Surprisingly?
2: What are you kidding? I mean, it's a major city. Yeah. And it's packed with people. So you would think like, oh, it's a city. Sure. But it also has, I mean, like you're just walking along the street and all of a sudden you're walking next to like a 3,000-year-old wall. Yeah. That's not even part of a museum. The oh, city yeah. just built up around it.
1: Yeah, dude, there'd be like a fountain on a corner. That blew my like mind. Like somebody's peeing in that's a thousand years old. Right.
2: It's it's a very neat city in that regard. Um, I like, uh, where else? Um, that's all I can come up with right now.
1: Oh, you know what? I don't have to go all fancy pants. Like uh, Charleston, South Carolina, one of my favorite it's places. It's a great place for food. Savannah. Yeah. Uh, I like Charleston over Savannah. Yeah? Yeah. They're similar to me.
2: Yeah. Charleston is a little more refined, but also a little more... Modern? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... It's not fancy pants to like cities overseas.
1: No, I know. But when someone says Paris, you're like, yeah. But Paris is awesome. It is. (laughs) It's a great time. And London. When's the last time you were in London? Uh, Like 20 years ago. Okay.
2: You should go back, because London... Is like a brand new city. Yeah, I bet. There is something to do at all times now. They have cabs, which is apparently like the big thing that changed there. Um, and it's just an awesome little town. Beautiful. Well, maybe we can go there on a tour. Yes, let's.
1: Uh, well, that's your turn for the question. Uh,
2: this is from Gus M. Parker. Why did Josh grow his hair? Gus, there's a simple answer to that. That's a good question. Because I can't. <laughs> because I realized that I have hair, and I'm going to live it up while I got it. Uh,
1: I'm going to go with Gary Rickelman. What is the best flavor of Pop-Tart? Hint, there is only one correct answer.
2: That is not true.
1: Gary, I think what the answer you're looking for is uh, brown sugar and cinnamon. It's a good one. There's nothing wrong with blueberry or strawberry. Strawberry's really good. As Fr- long frosted it's, strawberry. As long as it's frosted. Yeah. That's the key. Well, here's another key, and here's a tip for you that don't mind clogging your arteries, pop it out of the toaster. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Get a stick of butter (laughs) and rub it on the back, the dry side, Uh and then around the edges of the other side, and just thank me later.
2: I have not tried that, and I actually heard that before from Jessica Simpson when she was pregnant. Oh, really? Apparently just went berserk on the buttered Pop-Tarts. Never heard of that. You got time for one more?
1: Yeah, we got time for a couple more, I think.
2: This is uh, an unusual one from Michael Snively or Snively, one of the two. Probably Snively. If the Bryant and Clark were units of measure, what would they measure? Oh man,
1: mine would probably. Oh, I know what mine would be is some uh, sweat level, <laughs> like <laughs> that's a good units one. of sweat per square inch or something. That's a good one. Yeah,
2: mine would measure the distance between any one place and Awesome.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa. How's that? That's good. Thank you. All right, I got one more. Chelsea Hamilton, what's the most rewarding thing that stuff you should know has brought you or allowed you to do? We've done a lot of really neat things that we're very thankful for, but I'm going to just say uh, the live shows because they're so much fun. They're
2: a lot of fun. And it's
1: fun to go to cities I've never been to, and it's fun to meet people and get out of this little room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is very rewarding and very fun.
2: I'm going with Chuck's answer as well. All right. Uh, well thanks everybody for those Facebook questions. Um, if you ever want to get in touch with us on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash you should know. You can also tweet to us at, uh, syskpodcast. That's our handle. You can send us a good old fashioned email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web stuffyoushouldknow.com. should know.com.